Phillips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop us. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they a government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You call down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hand of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we take that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Okay, good morning, uh, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are in the world. It's four o'clock. It's actually about three minutes past four now in the UK, where I am in the north of England. Uh, which means it's 11 a.m. on the East Coast in the States. You're listening to Free Association, uh, which is me rambling on for an hour. Uh, but I've got a theme. The theme this week is, is, vaguely speaking, is Andy Warhol, The Velvet Underground, and Nico. Because kind of, I've lumped them all together, but I don't think I'm going to be able to actually cover The Velvet Underground or Nico this week, really. Uh, the, so I've got a, I've got a piece of documentary for, for Andy Warhol that I want to play, which gives an insight into his childhood and into his background and into 
there's family relationships. And I think it's important just to to remember that it's it's your childhood that forms you into who you are ultimately. And certainly that's the case for me. And it is for a, a lot of people. So it's probably the it's probably the same case for Bill Gates and for George Soros. It's your childhood that produces your character. It's your childhood that decides on the way that the the relationships in your life are going to play out. The the relationship you have with your parents and with your brothers and sisters and cousins in a lot of ways is the way that your life plays out. And I don't know how much there is you can do about that. There's, a, there's, there's certainly things you can do, but there are subconscious things going on that we may or may not be able to get at. I mean, I do a lot of things to get at subconscious issues and various things. I've, I've talked in the past about uh, being sick when I was about a year old. I think it was a year and three months, so my mother tells me anyway. I got sick with the measles when I was playing out in the front garden with my cousins. So anyway, I, ended up, I ended up sick with the measles. And it's, uh, I was thinking about it a long time. This is quite a while ago. I was thinking about it and I came up with the, the thought that obviously when you're sick, the, the world looks different. Uh, particularly if you're a very small child and you're sick, the world looks different. You start to see things, start to see the world as a hostile place rather than a, a friendly place. You start to see the world as intimidating rather than supportive. It's a, pla a place that's creating anxiety rather than creating happiness. So there are things sitting, sitting way, way, way underneath conscious thought from when I was a year and three months old, and it's taken me a long time to get at them. It's mostly fear. It turned into paranoia. But a deep-rooted fear of the world is basically what happened with me. And that comes out, it comes out in relationships or lack of relationships. It comes out in agoraphobia and inability to engage with people in in large groups. I'm okay with small groups. I'm less good with large groups. It comes out in in the way I kind of interact with the world, the way that I see the world. And the same the same's true of Andy Warhol, the same's true of Bill Gates, the same's true of George Soros. So this is this is projection to an extent. I'm taking me as a model and then projecting that out and assuming the rest of the world is the same. But I think it's probably a reasonable assumption to assume, to make that assumption is, is, is not unreasonable. So, so that's the way that I look at it. it it's, uh, it's your formative years, it's your, it's your preschool years, and very early school years that, that form your character. I mean, I'm, I'm basically the same person I was when I was 13, 14 years old. 
I like the same same well, I like the same types of music. I've expanded my range a little bit. It's not just heavy metal and goth now, but uh, which it was for a very long time. Uh, I was I was very into my metal and my goth stuff. But there's, there's never too much Bauhaus and Sisters of Mercy you can put into a into a day, or David Bowie for that matter. And all of those things, all of those people, all Jimi Hendrix. I discovered Jimi Hendrix when I was about 13, 14 years old on a, a Friday rock show on Radio 1. I think it was the first week or the second week that I listened to the, to the rock show. And they had an archive session that, that Hendrix had done at the BBC in 1967. And it was just magnificent. And that's the first encounter I'd had with, with Jimi Hendrix. And it, it, that's, that's, the, that's the formative thing. That's the formative thing in terms of music. First, I think the first week was uh, a, li a live gig that Yes was doing. They were, they were playing a live yes, yes gig. So it was Tales from Topographic Oceans and bits of drama, the album Drama. I think Trevor Horn was singing with them at the time. So I remember, I remember that. That was the first encounter I had with the Friday Rock Show. Anyway, it's a bit off topic for, for Andy Warhol, but uh, over the years I've seen quite a few people associated with Andy Warhol. I saw, I saw the Velvet Underground at the Glastonbury Festival, and I had to look up when, because I couldn't remember when. It turns out it was 1993, I think. The gig's on YouTube anyway. It's, uh, there's a, a kind of grainy camcorder footage of this this Glastonbury gig. So it's worth hunting out if you if you want to have some a bit of fun for an hour and a quarter. It was a, a daytime gig for a band that's probably best seen in a in a club at midnight. But it is what it is. It was in front of two hundred thousand people or hundred hundred and fifty thousand people. So they're not going to turn the gig down, are they? Uh, they just just go on and play the songs and do the best you can with the daytime. And I also saw uh, Nico, who was a singer, one of the, one of the people who sang on, a, on Velvet Underground albums. And I saw her when she, later in her life, she moved to, to Manchester in the United Kingdom and she settled there. And I, I remember going, going from Newcastle to Manchester uh, when I was a student. So this is 1986, probably, somewhere around there, mid-80s. And we went to see Nico at the Manchester Town Hall, which was effectively a church. It's, uh, I, think it was a, I think it was actually a church she was playing in. There must be a chapel in the town hall. And the acoustics were just phenomenal. So... I mean, I spent most of the gig with my eyes shut, just listening, because I didn't want to be distracted. She had a band with her, but uh, most of it was just reliant on the on the acoustics in that church, what she was doing. And I've I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. It was one of the one of the best live gigs that I've ever been to. Really, really was. And it was it was just about the acoustics. It was just about how it sounded. 
Anyway, so that's my link to Andy Warhol. That's my pers personal link to, to Warhol. But I've got a part of a documentary. I did a I did a show earlier in the day on Podbean, like a warm-up warm show, which has really kind of turned into a bit of a rehearsal. Uh, so I, I did the show, play, played a little bit of, of documentary footage, and this, and I actually changed the footage that I'm going to play completely. So this has turned into a completely different show to the one that I rehearsed. But that's all right. So this is this is from uh, I don't know when this documentary was made, but it's a two-parter, and I'm just going to play the first half an hour of the first part because it goes into his childhood. So let me share my screen before I do anything else. There we go, that should work. Now, if anybody's in the chat room, can give me a thumbs up when, if and when you, you hear this documentary starting. Otherwise, I'll assume there's something going on. Why it? do you agree? Well, because it's not original. You have just been copied, a common uh, item. Yes. Well, why have you bothered to do that? Why not create something new? Uh, because it's easier to do. Well, isn't this sort of a joke, then, that you're playing on the public? Uh, no. It gives me something to do. He was the most American of artists and the most artistic of Americans. So American, in fact, that he is virtually invisible to us. We look at him and knowing little of ourselves, learn little of Warhol because he was us in all our innocence, ambition and insecurity. A hard-working Democrat, a churchgoer and businessman, a social climber, empire builder, and inveterate consumer. In Warhol, the simplicity of a typical American citizen and the simplicity of artistic genius are so intermingled that we cannot distinguish them, nor properly credit either his Americanness or his genius. Dave Hickey. I think he's a touchstone of the culture and i mean painting art history i think he's a touchdown of the culture we live in a touchdown for the entire culture of the post-war period i think he is probably the most important artist of the second half of the 20th century maybe the most important artist of the 20th century if we needed to find a visual form to just distill what it's like to have been alive in the last 50 years. The image would come somewhere from the corpus of Andy Warhol. There is no way that anybody who is much younger than I am can understand how profoundly different the world before Andy and after Andy looked. You know, a supermarket before Andy looked one way, the supermarket after Andy looked another way. He literally changed the world, you know, and you change the world by changing what people look at, the priorities that they place on it. And so he changed the world. And the cultural consequences of that are really profound. He wanted it so much to be successful. He didn't want to be second rate or an underling in any way. 
and he didn't want to be first class or top rank either. He wanted to be a superstar. He wanted to do a big Nova that would eclipse everything. That's all he could settle for if he was going to have any happiness in life. And, and it did happen. But the impact overall was what was important. And he would be willing to live an ordinary life as a person if he could have the experience of doing this impact on the culture. And it's not showing everybody that I'm important type stuff. It's like Zeus throwing a lightning bolt. It's the being able to throw the lightning bolt. Not being Zeus, but being someone who has the power to throw lightning. That was the only thing that would satisfy Andy. And it happened. I think the reason why he has such staying power, and there isn't a proper understanding of him because he was so complex, yet he said he was so simple. But see, that was, that was another dodge to really, because uh, he's probably one of the most complex people I've ever met. I think his greatest gift was immediacy, making you see in an unmediated way, just right there in front of you with kind of absolute frontal clarity. I think that he had that, he had a feeling for it, and a grasp of it that was unique. In addition to that, curiously enough, despite the sort of a phase like, I never had an idea, I'm just Andy Warhol, that sort of numbed out look and claim, I would say that Andy was one of the very impressive artists of ideas. His art always suggests something about life that can be formulated in philosophic terms. And I think he knew that. I think that just as he got the force of personality by withdrawing into his shyness and his personality, so he got the force of ideas by withdrawing from any active assertion of ideas and letting them happen through the medium of his art, through the medium of that immediacy. Oh, it's called Blonde and a Bum Trip. Are there any marvels? What's it about? It's about um, <laughs> a naive young lady who goes to Hollywood to make it big. One narrative would be the Marjorie Morningstar narrative. I think that Marjorie Morningstar was one of his early self-images. He must have signed certain works. Andy Morningstar. It's basically a girl from nowhere moving to somewhere. The star narrative, a star is born. I think that's the big narrative of Andy's life. From the very start, he was not who most people thought he was, or what most people thought an artist should be. Born on the Depression, a child of enormous transformation and change, at once strangely afflicted and strangely blessed. He would come of age as America itself finished coming of age in the decades following the Second World War, as one of the greatest transformations in the history of modern culture took the world by storm. He was a ethnic Polish with a bad nose and St. Vitus dance and blotches, etc., who was gay and really, really swish and had a freaky mother 
and was bad with people, was probably dyslexic, a little autistic, maybe had Asperger's syndrome or whatever one of those things is. Yeah, and it would be really nice to become Lana Turner and Art let him do that. Started to go from further down to further up in uh, contemporary culture. I think the thing about Andy and a lot of people in America who rise to the top and become very famous is that Andy had no idea of bourgeois life. He never saw it. He never lived it. But that's, I think, what he imagined. You know, I mean, that was the goal, was like normal life. Never anything normal about Andy from the first to the last. You know, he's in the ghetto. He's hanging out with Liza. <clears throat> he's taking nude pictures of drag queens. You know, he's being shot by Valerie. Well, there's the fact that he was this poor boy from an immigrant family, from a very deprived immigrant family. His father had died when he was young, working against every man who was carried to very considerable success on the strength of talent alone. That's in itself very interesting. We say it should happen a lot. It doesn't always happen, but it happened to him. in three astonishing years at the dawn of the 1960s andy warhol would turn the art world upside down and take american culture by storm radically revising the meaning of art and our sense of what a painting could be he would take the idea of art in the age of mechanical reproduction to its logical extreme permanently breaching the wall dividing fine art and commerce grasping as no one before or since the function of fame in a mass society he would force us to confront and re-envision the world we live in permanently transforming the way we see the world around us along the way he would transform himself rising from the humblest of backgrounds to become the most famous and famously controversial artist of his generation at once fulfilling the promise of the american dream and at the same time redefining it, reinventing it, and calling it into question. There's no way to really plumb Andy's instinctive selfishness. In other words, Andy did nothing but try to make the world safe for Andy. But in order to do that, he had to exercise such a profound cultural paradigm shift that, uh, you know, there's no end. I know there's no end of the people that I know who were empowered and given permission and socialized, you know, on, on the occasion of Warhol's production, you know. You know, he issued this sort of nationwide permission that uh, really freed America from World War II, in my, in my mind. I mean, it really marks the beginning of the post-war period. And his idea that we all should be on TV that we all should be famous for 15 minutes. All of this is just outrageous. You know what I mean? I mean, it is anti-elitist in the extreme. 
but it's also, you know, a new world. You know, I mean, the pop world was a new world. All of a sudden, you could see the idea that America could come together. You know what I mean? That there was that promise there, that vision of some kind of synthesis. It's straight people and queer people and rich people and poor people and movie people and literary people. You know, I mean, and it was all coming together. I think that Warhol's desire to film everything or to tape everything or to redact or reduce everything to some kind of artistic embodiment was a form of transubstantiation. I mean, I think his philosophy of art and of life was to take a, a possibly unbearable and chaotic reality and pass it through the looking glass of some medium and ideally subject those raw data to as little manipulation as possible. Maybe not even be there behind the camera or not even use one's hand to essentially silkscreen reality. And, and I think all of his, his search for different media, TV, um, movies, books, paintings, sculpture, performance, was an attempt to play again and again this trick of transubstantiating garbage and making it valuable. It is a fascinating fact that Andy was one of the visual artists, one of the great visual artists of his period who dreamt of going to Hollywood. At one point he thought of renaming the factory Hollywood. At the same time, he was an artist with, among his many talents, could not be found any talent for narrative. He couldn't tell a story, didn't know anything about telling a story. So here is an artist with zero talent for narrative whose life, nonetheless, is like a novel. It's completely coherent. His story was one of the things that was most compelling about him, what people got and understood about him right away. Even though his genius was for immediacy and for absolute refusal to tell a story. Just, this is it, this is it, nothing more, nothing before, nothing after, not where we're going, not where we've been, just right now. But at this, what happened to the man was a novel. And everything about it had a kind of strange and powerful coherence. I think that he was an artist dealing with immediacy, intensity, vividness, power of connection, and the threat to all that that comes with death. And that was a powerful narrative force in his life. He lived it whether he wanted to or not. I think the reason is that Andy was really attuned to some very large issues, despite his famous superficiality. And one of the things is that immediacy, especially in the great traditions of the Romantic movement, is always on the edge of death somewhere because we're always losing the moment. It's always vanishing, you know. It's, Faust says to the great, to him, linger yet a while, thou art so fair. And then it's gone. And that going, endless going, was something that Andy was, was really a genius about. I try to think of what time is, and all I can think is, Time is, time was, Andy Warhol.
and his background, like everything else about him, was so odd and so vague. I mean, he came from nowhere in so far as there is nowhere in Europe. The people were incredibly poor and they had faith. I think again, the faith kept them going. I mean, they had no money. They left the area when it, as soon as they possibly could because there was so little work and so much poverty. His parents were from part of Central Europe called Ruthenia, which is on the borders of what is now the Ukraine, Poland, Slovakia, and Romania. When they came to the United States, they lived in the Slavic ghettos, but as one of Andy's brothers said to me, we didn't really know what we were. We knew we weren't Polacks, we weren't Honkies, which is, they were Hungarians. We spoke this language called Slavish, they call it. Basically, Andy grew up in something that looked like and felt like and acted like a Central European ghetto completely surrounded by America. You know, I mean, that is, if you've been in that neighborhood in Pittsburgh and you've been in Czechoslovakia, you know, physically, that's the same place. And if everybody's talking Slovak and everybody is living in village ways, and then you're totally surrounded by all of this iconography and everything, you've got to both see the connections and see the differences. And I think Warhol understood the power of that. He had that sort of romance with America, but just the giant distances, you know. He was born Andrew Warhola on the 6th of August in the summer of 1928 in the tiny low ceiling bedroom of his parents' house in Pittsburgh, the third and youngest son of Andre and Julia Warhola, hardworking immigrants from the heartland of Central Europe. One of his first childhood homes in a working class slum strung along the polluted waters of the Monongahela was the worst place I've ever been in my life, he later said. Two drab rooms on the second floor of a narrow brick row house, so cramped for space that he and his brothers, Paul and John, had to sleep together in a single bed. I remember three houses like that before my dad bought his house on Dawson Street. First thing, Andy was six years old and he asked me, uh, is there a yard? Because we didn't have no yard where we lived before. We lived like in two rooms with an outside toilet. Then he says, is there a bathtub in that house? I said, yeah, we got a whole bathroom in our hand. He was real happy about it. I gave my dad a lot of credit coming over here, didn't know the language, and he saved up enough of money and he bought that house cash, $3,200, I still remember. All through the Depression, his mother, Julia, a strong-willed, idiosyncratic, deeply loving woman with a knack for drawing and a beautiful singing voice, helped bring in money any way she could, cleaning houses for a dollar a day and making floral bouquets from tin cans and crepe paper which she sold door to door for a quarter apiece. I still remember her when we were small. We didn't have no radio or TV to keep you quiet. And in the winter, she'd tell us to come in the kitchen and she'd say, all right, somebody draw a picture of a cow, you know, and then the one that draws the best picture will get a prize. So what she did, she bought a, the Hershey bars for nickel, real big, you know. When, you know, she, she says, Andy had the best picture, you know. She had a lot of influence on Andy, you know. She started him out when he was small, and I guess it, it just took off on him. He stuck to his art since he was like about five or six years old. Every Saturday night and Sunday morning, 
Andy and his mother made the three-mile walk to St. John Chrysostom, a small Byzantine Catholic church filled with incense and lit by candles, where they sat through the long services conducted entirely in Old Slavonic, which always began with an exorcism of the devil. Andy, as a little boy, was taken by his mother to Vespers, a Saturday night ceremony service, and then three masses on Sunday morning back to back. And they have this anastasis, which is a grid, these screens that cover the altar and are only opened up during the communion service. So he was eight hours a week looking at this iconostasis, a little child, you know, taking it all in. And what he was seeing was a grid of portraits of the saints, very two-dimensional with gold leaf backgrounds and perhaps nine on either side, maybe 18 altogether. I mean, which is so much like his work, you know, especially his portraits. They've got this simplicity and this sense of color and this iconic quality that comes right from that sort of Byzantine, Eastern Rite kind of art. I noticed where he was different when we picked up size of play, you know, softball, and he was out in the field. We'd play like about five or six innings, and here somebody hit the ball out where Andy was supposed to be. And he was sitting in front of, uh, on the steps in front of the house, and he was drawing pictures of, uh, like, flowers and uh, butterflies. And that's where I noticed he was different, you know. From the very start, it was clear to both Andre and Julia that there was something different about their youngest child. Pale-skinned and frail-looking, bright-witted but high-strung, and prone to accidents and ailments of every kind. He refused to take part in rough-and-tumble games, from an early age clearly preferred the company of girls, and was so excruciatingly shy that he was often unable to enter a room where his own family had gathered, curling his hand around the doorway instead to show off pictures he was particularly proud of. Not long after his eighth birthday, he contracted the illness that would permanently alter the course of his childhood, when an episode of rheumatic fever developed into a severe case of St. Vitus dance, a disorder of the central nervous system characterized by extreme and often frightening mood swings and by uncontrollable spasms of the arms and legs. School, challenging from the start, now became a nightmare for him. The disease made it difficult to tie his own shoes or to talk without slurring his speech. When he tried to write on a blackboard, his hands shook so violently that his classmates erupted in gales of laughter sending him back to his seat in tears. He eventually had to withdraw from school entirely and be confined to bed for months. I always had a theory about Andy and his work, and I don't know where it came from. He got this wonderful idea that there was something remarkable about staring at something for a long time, which is probably what somebody does who's awfully lonely in his life. He always said that he had 13 nervous breakdowns before he was 13 years old. And I would think that one of the things that happens to somebody like that is uh, to try to keep yourself sane. You, you stare at an object, you somehow concentrate. And I've often thought that you can look at something like that and bring qualities to it that because it's such a common object, you sort of don't even think about. The prolonged illness permanently scarred him inside and out leaving him with a mysterious albino-like loss of pigmentation in his skin. Large reddish-brown splotches all over his face, arms, 
hands and chest, and almost crippling anxiety about his physical appearance and a lifelong hypersensitivity to touch. Determined to coax him back to health, Julia transformed the Warhola dining room into a 24-hour sick room, where for months he convalesced, wiping away the long days, filling in coloring books, cutting out paper dolls, making collages out of pictures cut from movie magazines, and listening to the new family radio. He's this lost little boy in this house where nobody spoke English. He was sickly, he was effeminate, you know, he, the other kids made fun of him. And he would write away in the fan magazines for autographed photographs of the movie stars. And he would read these fan magazines. He just somehow absorbed this mass culture, you know, like right at its root, where it really started, the Hollywood promotion machine of the 1920s and 1930s, you know? That's where it really began. ...vulnerable on the outside, he became the absolute master of his own inner world, capable of intense and almost obsessive feats of focus and concentration, spending hours at a time poring over his artwork and his collection of cherished images. He developed a particular obsession with Shirley Temple, rode away to her fan club, and received in return a glossy photograph signed personally by the child star, which he venerated with an intensity that rivaled his mother's passion for the icons of her church. By his side much of the time was Julia herself, warmly urging him on, triumphantly rewarding each finished picture with a bar of chocolate, all the while chattering away in a musical mixture of Rusine and broken English. They were very close. They were children together. When he was sick and stayed home from school, she was nearby. And he recognized absolutely that she was a central figure in his life. It's a secret workshop, what went on in Julia's kitchen, Julia Warhol's kitchen. I don't know if I have the answer, except that maybe his answer is turn to the least likely source to get your art lessons. You know, imagine that Warhol learned more about how to be an artist from Shirley Temple and Lana Turner and Julia Warhola than he learned from Duchamp, Jackson Pollock, Picasso. You know, his art has the maternal inscription in it. Eager to nurture her youngest son's artistic gift. Okay, that's probably enough of that. Uh, there's another... Well, it's a, as I said, it's a two-parter, and it's, it's literally an hour and 52 minutes for the first part, and then another hour and 50 minutes or whatever for the second part. So there's almost four hours of documentary footage. It's quite, quite an intense thing, but uh, worth having a look at. And I've, I've certainly started to see the world in a different way since I started watching Andy Warhol documentaries. So that consciousness passes in, I think. Uh, filmmaking's a way of transferring consciousness to people, as is music, as is dance or any kind of art project. And uh, I started to see more beauty in small details in the world. It's difficult to describe, but... Uh, and I'm noticing things in a different way since I started watching these documentaries, and I think it's helping. So, so much chaos and 
nonsense going on. I think if I focus on the, the beauty and the details, that's going to help me get through it. So that's kind of what I'm doing. That's kind of, I didn't know that was what I was doing until I started doing it. But uh, <laughs> that's often the way with me. I figure it out as I go along. I don't really know why I'm doing things until I do them. Quite often. <coughs> there was another synchronicity I wanted to talk about, but I've forgotten what it was. Not to worry. Um, let's have a look in the chat room. Let's say hello to the people in the chat room. And I'll just turn my volume down because I think I'm starting to feed back a little bit. So in the Rev Radio chat room, or just to let you know, Rev Revolution Radio is entirely listener supported. Uh, we rely on donations. Nobody takes any money. It all goes towards keeping the servers running and paying for bandwidth and all the other things that need to happen. Neither the hosts or the management committee take any money from, from donations. So if you are interested in keeping things moving, pay it forward so that we can pay it forward, whatever. Uh, Revolution.radio is the place to go, or freedomslips.com. And in the navigation bar at the top of the page, you'll find a donation link uh, where you can make a donation by Patreon, either a one-off donation or a monthly donation, or there's a, a place to make one-off donations online. Uh, they take they take cryptocurrency as well now, and there's a an address at the bottom of the page to send send a check or a money order. If you want to do it the old-fashioned way. Anyway, you do it, it would be appreciated because there's uh, there's bills to be paid the same way as there's bills to be paid in everything else in life. Uh, nothing nothing happens for well, not very much happens for free. Usually, if something's free, there's a there's a catch somewhere in my limited experience of these things. So on the on the room visitors list, we've got Starfire twenty twenty five, Elias, Elza, Doctor Memjing, Lady Horse, Ames Marie, Mist one three nine, Lone Gunman, uh, Monsoon Maru. Batsman, Laura Bell, Dry Fly Guy, uh, Dawn to you too. IDY Update, uh, WSOD, and Wild Bob. Those are the people that show up on my screen. So hello to everybody. I know there's a few people listening. Uh, it's good to know that there's actually a an audience there somewhere. I, I assume that everything's Madison Square Garden and I just do it anyway, but uh, a 20,000 crowd and a and a 20 crowd are basically the same. You've still got to do the same thing. You've still got to have the same attitude, same approach. And uh, if, you, if you imagine that you're in front of a crowd of 20,000 people, that imaginary act could produce 20,000 people. Who's to know? 
And my assumption on these shows is imagination creates reality. So it makes sense for me to do it that way. And I think there's there's a good likelihood that there'll be a large audience there for me somewhere. So let's have another look at this Andy Warhol documentary for five more minutes. Julia enrolled him at the age of nine in a series of free art classes given by the Carnegie Museum of Art. Every Saturday morning, he would make his way across the steep ravine that separated the working class world of Dawson Street from the spacious precincts of Shenley Park. Sometimes spending hours at a time after class was over, wandering through the galleries, carefully studying each painting and sculpture. It was his first exposure to the world of fine art and to a life beyond the narrow confines of Dawson Street. Andy was short of his 14th birthday when my father died. He was on a job in uh, West Virginia and uh, they were moving some heavy equipment and uh, there was a spring that was in the summer and uh, all the men drank the spring water and here it was contaminated, they didn't know it. They all got sick and uh, he's the only one that uh, didn't pull through. For three days, his father's body was laid out in the living room of the tiny house on Dawson Street. Terrified of seeing his father's corpse, Andy hid upstairs under a bed, weeping uncontrollably and refusing to come out. He just didn't want to see Dad, his older brother Paul remembered. My dad, five days before he passed away, he told me he was going to go to the hospital. And he says, that, uh, I just want you to make sure that you pay the taxes so you, you don't lose the house and keep that $1,500 for Andy's tuition for school. He says he's going to go to a college someday. You'll be, you'll be proud of him. Two years later, family was dealt another crushing blow when Julia was diagnosed with cancer of the colon and had to have an emergency operation to remove her large intestines. Did Mama die was all Andy could say to his older brother, John, after the surgery was over. She was in a hospital for about six weeks. And uh, Andy would come from school. I'd make a sandwich and I'd just open up a can of tomato soup. So I must have probably made it just about every day, you know, soup and a sandwich for about six weeks when my mother was in a hospital. In the end, Andre Rojola's confidence in his youngest son's gifts would not prove unfounded. All through high school, he remained a lonely, undistinguished student, still hampered by dyslexia, odd-looking and shy, and utterly uninterested in dating girls, a disinclination Julia stubbornly refused ever to acknowledge or come to terms with. But he astonished his teachers with the dedication he brought to his courses in drawing and by his senior year had become an assured draftsman with a special gift for portraiture. A more talented person than Andy Warhol I never knew, one teacher remembered. He was magnificently talented. Shortly after his 17th birthday, on August 6, 1945, the day the first atomic bomb was dropped on Japan, he enrolled as an art student at Carnegie Tech, his way partly paid by the postal bonds his father had set aside for him. The baby in a class for returning veterans, many four and five years his senior, 
He was remembered by one teacher as a small, thin boy who had a great talent for avoiding personal contact. Threatened with expulsion after failing to pass a daunting first-year course called Thought and Expression, he worked furiously to redeem himself over the summer. Speed-sketching street scenes in the increasingly fluent style he had begun to make his own. The remarkable drawings helped convince the faculty to reinstate him, and that fall, brought him the Institute's coveted Leiser Prize, which carried with it a $40 award, the first money he ever received for a work of art. It was very apparent to all of us that Andy was extraordinarily talented. There was this quality. Andy was a very young person. He liked to laugh. He was very naive and left himself open in a way. He was like an angel in the sky at the beginning of his college times. But only for then. That's what college gets rid of. Philip Perlstein. Still painfully self-conscious about his looks, and especially about his prominent acne-blemished nose, which had prompted his brothers to give him the nickname Andy the Red-Nosed Warhola, he confided mainly in women, never spoke about his sexual interests, like most of his peers was not yet sexually active, but was quietly assumed by most friends to be homosexual. I think Andy had this indefinable quality of the holy fool, utterly unlike any other human being. I'm not saying he was in touch with God or anything, but he just was different. As I say, very passive. Things happened to him. He was a witness rather than a participator in life. And this, in a curious way, protected him. I always felt that there was some kind of um, divine protection of Andy. I mean, he was delicate, fragile, vulnerable in lots of different ways. But there was this sort of curious iron faith that kept him going. I think Carnegie Tech, in some ways, both sharpened Warhol's skills, but also gave him something to push against. I mean, he really didn't follow the course at all. He wasn't a follower mostly because he had a very different idea of what he wanted to do. The other thing that he discovered, which was a really radical invention for him, was the use of what's called a blotted line technique. What it is, of course, is to take ink and to make a drawing on one paper and take another piece of paper and blot it on top. It's really a monoprint, essentially. And in finding that technique, Warhol found a key to something. First of all, he could make many images from one drawing, the fundamental basis of his career. But he also created something that looked printed. And that's very different than just the original line. This became a technique that he experimented with throughout his career. And the other thing is, I think by going to Carnegie, he realized that there was a world beyond Pittsburgh and that he had to go to New York. As graduation approached in the spring of 1949, his thoughts turned increasingly to New York. His mother did everything she could to dissuade him from going, warning he would end up dead in the gutter without a penny in his pocket. But in the end, nothing could dissuade him. So he told my mother, he says, you know, I'm gonna have to go to New York. He says, that's a place where they have a lot of magazine companies and he had the right idea, you know, so. I remember I took him down a station, down a train station. I'd give him $50. He had some money saved up. In the second week of June, 1949, 
he said goodbye to his mother and brothers and boarded the overnight train for New York with his friend Philip Goldstein. The next morning, just after dawn, he emerged into the vast echoing Valhalla of Pennsylvania Station and stepped out onto 7th Avenue. He had $200 in his pocket and a portfolio of drawings under his arm. He was 20 years old. Behind him lay Pittsburgh, before him the vast sprawling city of his dreams. For the next four decades, it would be the only place he ever really felt at home. Okay, so that was Ant's early life. And you can see how the the ghetto in Pittsburgh translated into another ghetto in New York. And there's some parallels there. And when he got settled in New York, his mother moved in and stayed there after his father died. So he spent a lot of time uh, with his mother. I think must have had a good life. Must have had a good life. He certainly lived life. And it's difficult to know with people whether they're actually enjoying life or not. Some people smile all the time, and yet they, you know, they're miserable. And the people who look miserable are usually the people who are actually enjoying life a little bit. It's difficult to tell, and there's no real way to know what the way people feel about life, unless they, even if they tell you, they could just be telling you what you want to hear. But getting back to the radio show, this, this shows here every Saturday morning, US time, every Saturday afternoon, UK time. Uh, you'll also find me on Podbean, uh, free association and my my name on there is Radio Projects for the live shows that I do there. There's a few other places you can find me with various different projects, but uh, radioprojects.co.uk is a radio station that I set up a few years ago, and it just runs on autopilot pretty much. But there's 500 people listening there now, on a monthly basis at least, 40-something 40, 40 people at any one time. So I'm I'm pretty happy with the way that runs. And there's there's some good material on there. I'm going to add this to to one of the time slots over there and run it run it continuously, I think. At least once a week. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter name is Dennis Barker. Uh, that's probably the best place to to find out what I'm doing because I move around a lot and I'm, I've got various different projects going on on Discord, on Podbean, on Telegram now as well. So you, we can always track me down on Twitter. So once again, thanks for listening and uh, I'll be back this time next week. I don't know exactly what it's going to be about next week. I'm trying to find a, a personal way into doing a little bit about the doors but I haven't really found a way to do that yet so it could change well, I'll see you next week anyway thanks for listening
Revolution Radio. Hey everyone, it's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, and there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. What the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad Radio. Federal prosecutors, Department of Homeland Security agents, and curious passersby often ask me, just what is this truth jihad thing anyway? Well, everybody knows what truth is, but jihad is a misunderstood term. Jihad means effort or struggle. The greater jihad is the struggle to be a better person, while the lesser jihad is the struggle to defend the community. Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, did say that the best jihad is a word of truth flung in the face of a tyrant. And that's what we do here at Truth Jihad Radio. Every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 7 Pacific, right here on Revolution Radio. 